for the last few months, whenever we have observed the Lord's Supper, we have studied Psalm 22, the Psalm I just read to you. And we've studied it because it is such a remarkable prophetic psalm focusing solely on the sufferings of Jesus while on the cross. And so this morning we turn our attention once again to Psalm 22 as we conclude our study of this divinely inspired Song of David. Now it's very likely that many of you prior to doing this study were somewhat aware that Psalm 22 is about the death of Christ, but what you probably did not realize was just how detailed, how precise, how thorough this psalm is in telling us about what Jesus went through on the cross. There is no other prophetic portion of scripture quite like Psalm 22. It is unique, it is distinct. There's no other passage in the Bible that gives us such a comprehensive and insightful look at the agony and pain and suffering that our Lord went through on the cross. Spurgeon, who was familiar with every single verse of every single psalm, having done a massive exposition on all of them, you can read them, there are several volumes called the Treasury of David. He, though he studied every verse of every psalm, he considered Psalm 22 to be unique and special amongst the psalms. He referred to it, Spurgeon called this psalm a kind of gem amongst the psalms. And concerning Psalm 22, Spurgeon said this, he said, I know not whether any psalm throughout the whole book contains matter more weighty or from which the hearts of the godly can so truly perceive those sighs and groans which our Lord uttered in the midst of the pains and terrors of hell. In other words, he's saying that Psalm 22 reveals the sufferings of Jesus as no other psalm does, no other portion of scripture does. But it does more, folks, than just tell us about Christ's sufferings. It doesn't just inform us that Jesus suffered. What we've discovered from our previous studies and what makes Psalm 22 so unusual is that this psalm actually takes us into the very heart and soul of our Lord. It reveals to us what was going through the mind of Jesus, what he was thinking, his very thoughts, while he was undergoing such intense agony on the cross. That's what makes this so special. And that's why we have been taking our time going through this psalm because we don't want to miss anything. There's so much depth, there's so much profound truth here that we want to grasp and we want to understand exactly how Jesus suffered on the cross, what he went through on our account, what he endured out of love for us. So we've been making our way slowly through this psalm. So far, what we have learned is that Jesus suffered in three very specific ways. Number one, he suffered by being rejected by God the Father. The psalm opens with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a rhetorical question. Jesus knew why the Father had abandoned him. He abandoned him because he who knew no sin was made sin for us while on the cross. God the Father in his holiness had to turn away from Christ who for those hours on the cross was our sin offering. So he suffered by being rejected by 
God the Father. Secondly, Jesus suffered by being verbally insulted by the Jewish onlookers, men who unmercifully taunted him, his own kinsmen taunted him while he hung on the cross, accusing him of being a messianic fraud, a phony, a fake, a liar. He also suffered by being physically tortured by the Roman soldiers who were the ones who carried out the actual work of crucifying him, nailing him to the cross, and all the physical agony he endured. But as you might recall last time in our study of Psalm 22, which was several months ago, we turned a corner. We turned a corner. Let me remind you. What we saw with the last few words of verse 21 was that the entire mood and the tone of the psalm changed. Here's what we read in verse 21. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. Now note this, you answer me. Now here we read something that we have not seen in this psalm prior to this. Answered prayer. Jesus said, you answer me. You see, having been forsaken by the Father, up to this point, heaven has just been silent towards Christ. Silent. No answer to prayer. No response as he bears the sins of those who would come to believe him. But now we hear our Lord saying, you answer me. For the first time since he's been on the cross, Jesus has this assurance. He has this this sense of certainty, the sense of confidence that having prayed, God has heard his prayers, his prayers for deliverance, and he's going to answer them. And what that indicates is that the time of being rejected, the time of being forsaken and abandoned by the Father, it's over. It's over. Commenting on this special moment in our Lord's crucifixion experience, James Montgomery Boyce wrote this. He said, this is a cry of triumph, not despair. It marks the moment at which the period of darkness passes and Jesus having suffered a true alienation from the Father as punishment for our sins becomes aware of God's presence and favor once again. This is a turning point in the psalm. Beginning with this declaration that God has answered Jesus' prayer is when, as I've said, just the entire mood, tone of the psalm begins to change. Instead of hearing more about the pain and suffering of Jesus, what he was experiencing, which we've heard all throughout the psalm, we don't hear it anymore. Now we hear him telling us rather joyfully how his work of going to the cross and being punished for sinners is going to end up in triumph, in victory, because it will result, note this, it will result in the salvation of lost souls. Folks, that's what the remainder of this psalm is about. It is about Jesus telling us that after his death, he's going to be raised from the dead, he's going to be resurrected, and his resurrection will produce gospel preaching from those who followed him, and the gospel being preached will result in many trusting him for their eternal salvation. See, this is the very reason Jesus went to the cross. This is the very reason he let such wicked men arrest him, spit on him, beat him, crucify him. He suffered so that sinners could be saved. That's why, and it's this anticipation 
of sinners being saved by his work on the cross that was in the words of the writer to the Hebrews, the joy that was set before him. That's what Hebrews 12 verse 2 says. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame. It was what he anticipated that had him endure all this horror. So this is what enabled Jesus to endure the shame and the indignity of the cross, being treated like the worst of sinners, being rejected by the Father, being insulted by his own Jewish brethren, being tortured by Roman soldiers, and being disgraced and humiliated by being crucified naked for all to see and to stare at. He suffered the shame and humiliation of all of this so that sinners like us could be rescued from their sin and never have to suffer like that. And something that's important for us to keep in mind is that Christ's death and the way he suffered, the way he died, was always God's plan for all of eternity. This was not an accident. This was not a a plan gone bad. None of this took Jesus by surprise. It was all planned out by God. Everything that would happen to him, it was planned out before it actually happened. And knowing that, it's remarkable, knowing that he was willing to go through it all, and he did it for us. See, without forcing anyone to act wickedly, and God never does, God never forces people to do sin, to sin against their will, they always want to do this, but God sovereignly controlled and he even orchestrated the death of Christ in a way that it was, the way that it was carried out in order that sin would be punished and paid for so that those who would come to believe in him would be saved from hell. That is to say, the sufferings and death of Jesus were all planned, planned by God for our benefit down to the very last detail. Now, I want you to notice the many scriptures that speak of Christ, Christ's pre-planned death. And I say this only to exalt the Lord because salvation is not of man. It is of God from beginning to end. And unless you see God's sovereignty in all of this, you will not glorify him as he wants to be glorified. You'll have a man-centered theology rather than a God-centered theology. So we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, Note this, for he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Now understand, this doesn't mean that the Father merely knew ahead, knew ahead of time that Jesus would die. Of course he knew ahead of time. You don't even have to say that. Of course he knew ahead of time. But the point here is that God the Father planned it out. He foreordained Christ's death in eternity past Peter said essentially the same thing in Acts 2, 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You nailed him to the cross, but it was the predetermined plan of God. You're guilty, but God planned this. He didn't force you to do this. Again, in Acts 4, 27 and 28, the apostles all prayed 
these words. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. This was all predetermined, predestined by God. And because of all, because all of these details of Christ's death were predetermined by God, that's the reason why Jesus could speak so accurately and with such detailed knowledge about how he was to die. Listen, none of us knows how we're going to die. God does, but, but we don't. Jesus knew how he was going to die. He said so in Matthew 16, 21. From this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He even knew that his actual death would be at the hands of the Gentile Romans and that he would die by crucifixion. He knew that. He said in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he'll be raised up. And in knowing how he would die, Jesus also knew why he would die, so that his people, his people would be saved from the penalty of their sin, from the wrath of God himself as he laid down his life for them. That's what Jesus said, John 10, 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so having spent most of Psalm 22 telling us about laying down his life for the sheep by, by suffering for them, for the remainder of this Psalm, Jesus focuses on what was accomplished by his sufferings on the cross, namely the salvation of people, as he tells us about three specific Groups of people who will be the beneficiaries of his death by experiencing eternal salvation. Now, folks, the exciting thing about identifying who has been saved, who will be saved by the death of Christ, is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted Christ for your salvation, you are on this list. You're on this list, which tells us that while on the cross, you personally were on the mind of of Christ. Imagine that. Think about that. Meditate on that. Jesus didn't simply die for a mass of people. He was thinking about you while he was on the cross. He did this for you. You were in his thoughts. You were in his mind. You were on his mind, even as he suffered. And therefore, it was... It was your salvation that brought him such great joy, even as he endured the agony of being crucified. No wonder, in speaking of Christ and his crucifixion, Paul said this in Galatians 2.20, who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice, Paul makes it so personal. It was for me, Paul said, he died. For me, he gave himself up. See, if you're a believer, this is how you have to read and understand Psalm 22, especially this last part. You have to see it in terms of it being very personal for you. He died for me. He died for you. He gave himself up for me. He gave himself up 
for you. You were in our Lord's mind and heart when he died, and it brought him great joy in anticipating your salvation. So what does that say to us about how we should love him? How we should serve him? How we should live for him? How we should obey him? Listen, if Jesus suffered so much for your salvation, then the rest of your life should be lived out in absolute gratitude to him by obeying him and serving him and not living for yourself. This is exactly how the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Paul said, for the love of Christ controls us. He doesn't mean my love for Christ, your love for Christ. He means Christ's love for you. For the love of Christ controls or compels us Having concluded this, this is Paul's conclusion, having thought about the love of Christ, that one died for all, meaning Christ died for all of his people. Therefore, all of his people died. And he died for all so that they who live, that's us, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. When you understand the death of Christ and you understand how personal it was and you understand what he did in going through all the agonies of the cross and he did it for you, the only legitimate response of a sinner who's been shown such mercy, such compassion is, Lord, I I give you my life. I can't live for myself anymore. I live for you and whatever work, whatever vocation I have, I do it for you. Now, the last time we studied Psalm 22, we looked at the first group of people Jesus said would be saved as a result of his work on the cross. And we'll just quickly review this, namely Jewish people, sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you, notice this, descendants of Jacob, talking about Jewish people, glorify him and stand in awe of him All you, again notice, descendants of Israel. Now what we read here is that the very first believers in Jesus were those initial first century Jewish followers and then those they witnessed to who came to Christ from the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's why Paul said in Romans 1 that the gospel was to the Jew first. It was. Historically, it came to Jewish people first. But it didn't stop there because today... As we continue our study of Psalm 22, and we're going to conclude our study of this psalm, we see that Jesus speaks of a second, and then finally even a third group of people who will be saved, with the second group being Gentile people. If the first group were Jewish people, this group is Gentile people. Verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. And what does this verse mean? Well, first of all, I want you to notice that Jesus said that he'll be praising God in something that he called the great assembly. What is that? Well, if you look back at verse 23, you'll notice that he said that he would tell of God's name, not in the great assembly, but rather in the assembly, which as we know is a reference to being assembled with his first Jewish followers. That's why immediately after this, he speaks of the descendants of Israel and Jacob. But here, in this verse, he expands this concept by being gathered together with his people from an assembly, notice this, not just from an assembly of Jewish people, but to a great assembly, 
It's gone from an assembly to a great assembly, which indicates that his followers have now been enlarged to include and encompass, note this, Gentiles who believe in him. Folks, this is a tremendous truth, really a remarkable truth, that one that we don't think much about, but we need to, that the Jewish Messiah, think about this, the Jewish Messiah would have so many Gentiles who follow him. But that is exactly what the Old Testament promised. You see, when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, he promised that from him, that from Abraham, meaning from one of Abraham's descendants, specifically, he's talking about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, all the families of the earth, and not only Jewish families, but all the families of the earth would be blessed. In other words, because of the Jewish Messiah, one of Abraham's physical descendants, Gentiles from around the world would be blessed by him in salvation. That was the promise that God made to Abraham long, long ago, that many Gentiles would be blessed by salvation in the Jewish Messiah. But listen, when Jesus came, he made it very clear that he didn't come to share the gospel with Gentiles, but only with the Jewish people. He himself said to a Gentile woman in Matthew 15, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. However, a little later in John 10, he said that in the future, he would turn to the Gentiles and save them. John 10, 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Now, these other sheep are Gentile sheep who, in addition to the Jewish sheep, would become one flock with Christ as their one shepherd. That's exactly what happened. As you know, in the early days of the church, many Gentiles did turn to Christ. They were saved. The book of Acts says that the gospel eventually moved out from the boundaries of Israel to other parts of the ancient world where it found so many receptive Gentiles that eventually the Gentile Christians around the world far outnumbered the Jewish Christians, and it's been that way to this time. It's been that way ever since, to this day. Now, I think that we tend to take this truth about Gentile Christians believing in a Jewish Messiah for granted, because in the world that we live in, there are so many more Gentile followers of Christ than there are Jewish believers in Him. So we tend to think it's sort of natural for a Gentile to become a Christian. In fact, there are many people who actually think that the word Gentile is synonymous with the word Christian, but it's not. A Christian is someone who sees his lost condition before God and comes to Christ in brokenness and repentance over his sin, and he trusts Christ and his death on the cross for his salvation. Now, if that person happens to be Jewish, meaning that he is a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he becomes a Jewish or sometimes referred to as a Hebrew Christian. And if he's a Gentile, meaning that he's simply not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then he becomes a Gentile Christian. But I want you to know that although Gentile Christians far outnumber Jewish Christians today, it is not natural for a Gentile to believe in the Jewish Messiah. It's never been natural and never will be natural. You see, it is supernatural 
For any Gentile to be a follower of Christ, it takes the supernatural, sovereign grace and power of God at work in a Gentile to bring him, to bring her to faith in Jesus. And I say that because when we look at what the Bible says about Gentiles, especially Gentiles at the time of Jesus, and the absolute ignorance that they had about the God of Israel and the wicked lives they lived, it is astounding absolutely astounding that so many Gentiles came to faith in Christ. Listen to what the New Testament says about the spiritual condition of the typical Gentile in the first century before he came to faith in Christ. Folks, these are your ancestors. So listen closely. Ephesians chapter 4, starting verse 17 So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness." Now, Paul states that the Gentiles of his day, of the first century, were futile in their thinking. What does that mean? Well, it means that they were vain in their thinking. It's the thought of aimlessness, that their thinking produced nothing of any moral value. Their lives were empty, without purpose, without any meaning. That was their life. In addition, he says, they walked in spiritual and moral darkness, And as a result, they were alienated from God, separated from him due to their ignorance about him and the truths of his word. And they were ignorant about him. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. In other words, they were ignorant because they hardened their hearts to him. They didn't want to know about him. As Paul says in Romans chapter one, they suppressed the truth as people still do today. And this hardness of heart produced a callousness, a a callous life of sensuality and moral impurity and greediness, thinking only of themselves and the sins that gave them pleasure. This was the condition of the Gentiles of Paul's day, futile in their thinking, ignorant of God, morally insensitive, so that they led lives of sensuality and lewdness. Now, the reason I I want you to see this is to understand that this is the way the vast majority of Gentiles in the first century who came to Christ once lived. They were in darkness, they were vile, they were corrupt, they were so lost, yet it was this group of wicked Gentiles that Jesus, by his power, saved and transformed into godly men and women. That is what gives God glory. He did it. See, although it certainly takes the supernatural work of God to bring Jewish people to faith in Christ, who inwardly are just as corrupt and just as immoral, though perhaps outwardly not showing that, but inwardly the same. However, when a Jewish person comes to to faith in Christ, We have some frame of reference, uh, some historical backgrounds, some historical context, because we're coming back in reality to the God of our fathers. This is our Messiah. These are our scriptures delivered to us by our own prophets. But for a Gentile to come to faith in the Jewish Messiah, 
whether it be in the first century or today, is so far into his orientation, so far into his worldview, so different from his pagan ancestry. In fact, while many Jewish people can point to their ancestors as God-fearing, at least outwardly moral people, many Gentiles have ancient ancestors who were essentially brutal savages. Whenever I think about God's grace in saving so many Gentiles, and I know I've, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating, I recall a story that I once read concerning Benjamin Disraeli, a man who was Jewish. He was a member of the British Parliament. He would eventually go on to become the Prime Minister of Great Britain. And the story is told that one day a fellow member of Parliament publicly said something quite negative about the Jewishness of Disraeli, to which the future prime minister rose to his feet and replied with these now famous words. He said, sir, you accuse me of being a Jew and I'm proud to answer to the name and I would remind you that half of Christendom worships a Jew and the other half a Jewess. And I would also remind you that my forefathers were worshiping the one true and living God, while yours were naked savages eating acorns in the woods of Britain. Now, Jesus didn't refer to Gentiles as naked savages. He could have, but he didn't. But he did say that one of the great victories of his, his death on the cross would be the inclusion of many first century Gentiles who were once vile, lewd, ignorant idolaters. He would include them in his great assembly of true believers. Meaning what? Meaning his church. The church made up of Jew and Gentile. And what's more, he said they would also sit down and they would feast with him in his kingdom along with his Jewish followers. Notice once again, verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. Now watch this. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Now this verse speaks of vows that Jesus promised to pay when he would be with his followers in this great assembly. So what are these vows that he promised? Well, these vows seem to be a promise that Jesus made to the Father while he was on the cross, a promise, note this, to praise God the Father when he met with his followers in this great assembly. A promise that when I meet with them, I will give you praise. Now, according to the law of Moses, along with such vows to praise God in public, the person who made such a vow would have to bring an animal sacrifice, which would then become a meal, a banquet, a feast, that everyone in the assembly would then partake of. That's precisely why in the next few verses, Jesus speaks of the Gentile peoples of the world eating and being quite satisfied. Notice what we read in verses 26 through 29. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Now, let me explain. The imagery here, the imagery here is that of a banquet where people have gathered to eat as well as worship. They're eating and they're worshiping. 
That's why we read that those who are afflicted, meaning those who are poor, we read will eat and be satisfied as well as praise the Lord. They're going to eat, they're going to be satisfied, they're going to be praising the Lord. And all the families of the various nations will worship before the Lord. The Gentiles are there eating and worshiping before the Lord. And all those who are prosperous will eat and worship. So what are these verses about? What is a banquet where there's eating and worshiping? What does that have to do with Gentiles coming to faith in Christ? These verses are referring to a day in the future, it has not arrived yet, a day in the future when the messianic kingdom, the millennial 1,000 year reign of Christ on the earth, comes and is established. And Gentiles as well as Jewish believers then will gather will feast with each other and worship the Lord together in his kingdom. This is something that Jesus taught. He taught during his ministry. He spoke of a time when Jewish believers would be joined by Gentile believers and they would feast and worship together with him in the millennial age. This is our future. Matthew 8, 10 through 12. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, let me stop here. The marvel that Jesus is referring to is what I preached to you several months ago about the Roman centurion who asked Jesus to heal his servant, his slave who was dying, and then he said, you don't even have to come into my house. Just say the word, and I believe that he'll be healed. And Jesus said, I marvel. I haven't seen such faith like this in Israel. So now we hear... He marveled and said to those who were following, this is our Lord's response after hearing of the faith of this Gentile man. Truly I say to you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. There's no Jewish person I know has faith like this man. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, those are Jewish people, the vast majority of the Jewish people, will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in response to the faith of this Gentile Roman soldier, Jesus speaks of the day when many Gentiles will have the same kind of faith that this man had and will come then, join the Jewish patriarchs in the kingdom Tragically, though, many Jewish people, the vast majority, who expected to be there because they're religious and they're Jewish and and they are the physical descendants of the patriarchs, they won't be there. Why? Because they rejected Jesus as Messiah and Savior. In Matthew 22, verses 1 through 10, we read these words, and I want you to see this so that you'll see in context what this is about, historical context. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat and livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went their way, one to his own farm, one to another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, 
but those who were invited were not worthy. So go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. So what is this parable about? Well, it's rather obvious. The first guests in this parable, those who were first invited to the wedding feast, were Jewish people. The gospel first went out to Jewish people. But for the most part, though some came, for the most part, they were unwilling to come. As a nation, they said no. And so this king, who obviously represents God, ordered his slaves to invite others that they found on the various roads leading to and and from the city. And these other guests are clearly Gentiles who did respond to the gospel invitation. So going back to Psalm 22, this is the very thing that Jesus is anticipating as he hangs on the cross, that many Gentiles will come to believe in him. And it's obvious that these verses in Psalm 22, that they have to do with Gentiles turning to the Lord, because notice, we read such phrases as, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the ends of the earth, meaning the Gentile ends of the earth, not not Israel, And all the families of the nations will worship before you. And he rules over the nations. He's talking beyond the Jewish people, the nations of the world. In addition, these verses speak of various Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ from all the various walks of life. Those who are poor, those who are prosperous. He even mentions those on the verge of death. He speaks of those who go down to the dust will bow before him even he who cannot keep his soul alive. What he's saying is Gentiles from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different life experiences will be saved. Those who are poor, those who are wealthy, those who are healthy, those who are about to die. All these people, these Gentiles, will humble themselves by bowing down before the Lord in submission to his authority. And folks, that's exactly what happened in the early years of the church. Christ's apostles... And those first Jewish Christians, they took the gospel message all over the ancient world. And scores of Gentiles did accept Christ. And it was the anticipation, this anticipation, that gave Jesus such great joy while still on the cross. But it wasn't only the salvation of Gentiles or the salvation of Jewish people in the first century that gave Jesus this great joy In the remaining two verses of this psalm, the Lord mentions still another group, one more group of people who will be saved by his death. He speaks of those who will come to believe in him in future generations, the people of future generations, verses 30 and 31. Posterity, he says, will serve him. It will be told to the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Now as David brings Psalm 22 to a close, he tells us that our Lord's final thought while on the cross is that of posterity. Meaning what? It means future generations. Generations to come. That includes us. Those who hadn't even been born at the time of Christ. We wouldn't be born for another 2,000 years. In other words, Jesus is thinking about all of us who one day will be saved and serve him. 
And why will we be saved? How is it even possible? Because as these verses say, there will be faithful believers who will tell us about Christ and his righteousness. That is to say, someone will witness to you and tell you about Jesus, Jesus' righteousness, and that if you believe in him, God will apply Christ's righteousness to your account or words to that effect. And that's exactly what happened to all of us here and say that somebody told us about Jesus Christ. Somebody told us we didn't have any personal righteousness, but if we trusted him, his death on the cross for us, he would forgive us of our sins and he would impute to us his righteousness. But why and how? How is this possible that we who are such sinners, vile, lewd in our hearts, jealous, corrupt, lying people, and all the other sins, having no righteousness of our own, how can we suddenly have Christ's righteousness applied to us? Well, notice the last phrase of verse 31. This is the key. To a people who will be born, haven't been born yet when this was written, or even at the time of Christ, that he has performed it. Now listen closely. What this means is that those who witness about Christ to future generations are going to tell them that when Jesus died, he did it. He performed it. He accomplished it. To put it in another way, the way that Jesus put it when he died, it is finished. I've accomplished the work of salvation. I performed it. I did it. You see, what the gospel of Christ proclaims is that the righteous demands of a perfectly holy God that sin be completely punished has been accomplished. It's been done. Christ Jesus has performed it. God's righteous demands have been fully met by the substitutionary sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died, our debt, the debt that we owed God, which we could never, ever repay, For all of eternity, it was paid for by him. Paid for by him. And that's why Christ's final words on the cross were, it is finished. It's done. I've done it. I performed it. Literally, the thought is the debt is paid. The debt is paid. And so if Christ has already done the work, folks, necessary for our salvation. There's no work that you could possibly do to earn your salvation. That's why we sang that wonderful song earlier. Nothing we could do. No tears, no sacrifice, nothing we could do. The only thing that a lost sinner can do is accept, is accept Christ's work of being punished in their place by repenting of their sin and trusting him for salvation. That's all. One man who saw this clearly was J. Hudson Taylor. He was a pioneer missionary to China in the 1800s. Though Hudson Taylor was born into a godly home in England, for years he resisted the gospel. He heard the gospel. His mom and dad and his his sisters loved Christ, but not him. He just kept neglecting Christ. But when he became a teenager, his mother and his oldest sister, they began to be burdened to, to pray for young Hudson Taylor, pray for his conversion. And one day, when J. Hudson Taylor was 17 years old, he found himself going through his father's library, 
who was looking for something to pass the time to just read, and he found a gospel tract there, and so he began to go through it, he began to read it. Unknown to him, though, at that very moment, miles away, his mother was burdened to pray intensely for the salvation of her son's soul. As Hudson Taylor was reading this tract, he was captivated by an expression that he came across. The expression was the finished work of Christ. In his own words, he tells us what happened after that. Immediately, the words, it is finished, suggested themselves to my mind. What was finished? And I at once replied, a full and perfect atonement and satisfaction for sin. The debt was paid by the substitute. Christ died for our sins. Then came the thought, if the whole work was finished and the whole debt paid, what is there left for me to do? With this dawn, the joyful conviction as light was flashed into my soul by the Holy Spirit that there was nothing in the world to be done but to fall down on one's knees and accepting the Savior and his salvation to praise him forevermore. And that's exactly what J. Hudson Taylor did. He went on to be a very choice servant of the Lord for many years, founded a mission in China that to my knowledge is still going on to this day. Now this morning I ask you, have you ever fallen upon your, your knees and in your, your heart accepted Christ and his finished work on the cross? There's no work that you can do to earn your salvation. Jesus has done it all. He himself said, it's finished. He performed it. All that's left for you to do is rest in what he's done. Believe that his work on the cross was for you. And if you'll do that, if you'll trust him, he'll forgive your sins and he will apply his perfect righteousness to your account. It's the only way you're getting into heaven. Have your sins forgiven, having Christ's righteousness imputed to your account. So that is, folks, that's the gospel. And that's the challenge I pose to you this morning. I don't want to assume that you are all Christians. You know, for many, many years, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've spoken of him often, but I don't, I don't know that I've ever said this. Martin Lloyd-Jones came to faith later, it, well, relatively later in his life, in his early 20s. But he said that when he went to church, he never heard the gospel preached to him. Martin Lloyd-Jones went to church all of his life. Born in, in Wales, and then they moved to London. Lloyd-Jones heard the gospel all of his life, but he said the preacher just assumed that all of us were Christians because we were in church. He said he never preached the gospel to us. I never realized he said, I was in need of, of Christ. So from that point on, Martin Lloyd-Jones, after he did come to faith in Christ, he never made the assumption that the people listening to him knew Christ because his experience was many upright citizens, people can be in church and still not know Jesus. So I don't want to make that assumption either. Perhaps you've never repented of your sin. You know about Christ. You think that you have believed in him, but you've never been transformed in your character. You, you've never actually repented and turned from your sin and turned to Christ and asked him to save your soul and placed your trust in him. So I just challenge you to do that. Make sure that you know Jesus Christ. Young people, make sure you know Christ. Older folks, middle-aged folks, make sure you know Christ. 
And so if you want to speak to myself or one of our pastors after the service about knowing Christ, then I invite you when we close the service to come up and we'll talk. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Lord Jesus, thank you for suffering so much on our behalf. And I pray for anyone here who may have never truly been born again, that today might be the day of their salvation. That like Lloyd-Jones, they will come to a point where they realize that uh, they have assumed that they're Christians because they they don't do some horrible things that others in society do, but they've never been born again. They've never truly turned from their sin, turned from living for themselves and turned to you, trusting you to be their Savior and Lord. So I pray for that reality to take place in their lives. In your name we pray. Amen.